All right, welcome to another episode of Look at My Records, doing a series of episodes previewing the North Jersey Indie Rock Festival, talking with bands and artists that are playing it. It's coming up on October 6th, 2018 at White Eagle Hall, and this is the fourth and final installment of these preview episodes, and I'm here with Glenn Morrow of Glenn Morrow's Cry for Help. How are you doing hey. today? Hey, Tom. So great to have you here. How are you? I'm good. You know, can I just flip it around for a quick section? Sure. So you've been doing these interviews, and uh, have you checked out a bunch of the bands that are playing? And Oh, yeah. They're all really good. They're yeah, all awesome. A lot of good bands representing New Jersey very well. Dentist, Glazer, a lot of good bands from the New Brunswick area. Dentist, I know. I've Asbury Park area. Yeah. It's great. Glenn Morrow's Cry for Help. Looking forward go. to seeing them live as well. So are you excited to play the festival? Yeah, it's uh, it's 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 definitely a good time. I've gone just uh, as, you know, an audience member the last two years. And uh, it was it was a lot of fun, although in, uh, sonically a little challenging. So it's exciting to actually have it happening uh, in uh, uh, White Eagle. Yeah, new state-of-the-art yeah. venue, so it's very exciting. But before we get into your current project, Glenn Morrow's Cry for Help, and more modern-day things, you know, I just wanted to talk to you a little bit about, you have a very long history in northern New Jersey and Hoboken. You came to Hoboken before there was any music scene, really, in the late 1970s. What brought you there originally? To Hoboken. Well, I was, uh, <clears throat> I transferred to NYU uh, my, my junior year, and uh, I lived out in the suburbs. My parents, uh, I grew up in like Cedar Grove and Glen Ridge. Oh, I'm from Verona, did, oh, did yeah. we talk about that? My mom had an art gallery in Verona. <laughs> That's right, yeah, you told me <laughs> did that. I tell yeah, you? Yeah. So, uh, uh, yeah, I would take a, a train in. Uh, and get get the path and go into the village and you know go to classes and uh, you know I sort of just would occasionally poke my head sort of out the door and go oh Hoboken this is right huh if I lived in Hoboken I would you know I could get just class a lot yeah. quicker and I also didn't really didn't want to live you know be living at home after having been away the college for two years. And uh, and then one day I saw a girl from my economics class who I sort of had been, you know, eyeing or whatever, <laughs> but Fancy. slightly too shy to talk to in the economics class, maybe. But there she was sitting in the path train, reading a book, and uh, we just started talking. And I remember thinking it was kind of like, you know, that Talking Ed song. Uh, but the book I read, yeah. the book I read was In Your Eyes. And uh, she lived in Hoboken. And just by weird coincidence, we, we, I guess we started going out before I moved there, I think. But by a weird coincidence, I looked all over town for an apartment and found one. The nicest one I found was right next door to her, and it was six rooms for $85 a month. <laughs> Wow, what a steal <laughs> by any measure, yeah, I think. Yeah. And so at that point, were you involved in music 
at that point? Were you yes. playing music? Yes. Uh, the band A was together at that point. I think that came together the summer before I started going to NYU. Although we were based in Morristown. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So how'd you, you were in that band with Richard Barone, who went on yeah. to form the Bongos and right. do a lot of solo work. He's very associated with Hoboken as right. well. How'd you guys meet and start playing music together? Well, I met the other guys first, uh, Frank Giannini and Rob Norris, and they were living together in Morristown, and they had a band called Tin Can. And I kept running into Rob. Oh, that's right. I saw Tin Can play uh, in a park because a friend of mine was starting a booking agency called Farkus Productions, F-A-R-C-U-S, and... There was a, a performance in a park by three bands. One was uh, Tin Can, which was Frank and Rob and a guitar player whose name escapes me at the moment. Uh, and Yada Yada, which was banned by the guy that uh, uh, ended up recording a bunch of the Feelies records. Oh, and, wow. uh, but they were sort of like a, a prog band, like a... I mean, this is this is it really like punk rock hadn't even wasn't on anyone's radar yet. But Tin Can, Rob played uh, "Waiting for the Man." He got that was like his, mainly the guitar player sang, but Rob sang that, and I was like, "Wow, you know." And then it turned out that he had been in the you know we found out he was in like a later version of the Velvet Underground, and so it was like, "Oh my God, this is like as close to you know the source as you can get." So. <laughs> I kept running into Rob at different events in the city, like a James Brown concert and just different things. And finally, I, 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 I think I was saying, oh, maybe I'll manage you guys or something. And then maybe you guys would want to help me uh, with some songs that I've written, you know, like you could help me record them or something. I wasn't trying to muscle my way into the group. But next thing I know, they were like, our guitar player quit. We want to work with you and your songs. So... With that, we started auditioning people and through a long, involved process and trying out all kinds of people, we finally gave up trying, you know, to put ads in the Aquarian and uh, trying to find someone in New Jersey. Just nobody, we couldn't find anybody that was on our wavelength that was uh, just very strange. Some guy was into Roxy music that was drinking like cough syrup at the <laughs> audition and it just couldn't get anybody uh, kind of on our wavelength. Some yeah. other kids, we went to their house, and they had Marshall stacks, and they talked about the songs they'd written, but they really didn't have songs. They just sort of had ideas for songs on how, like, toasters would be flying through the air, you know, on strings. <laughs> and then they'd make sort of noises on their guitars. And, and then the neighbors, you could hear the neighbors banging on the walls, and they would just be oblivious, just rocking out. Just surreal. <laughs> um, but, so eventually we, we decided this isn't working so we got a we did a village voice ad instead and a, and a friend of mine uh, the late great Jim Van Tyne had an apartment in Brooklyn <coughs> so we used his phone number <laughs> so we'd have a New York phone number and that's where Richard found us and he was living with the Laughing Dogs who were a band that uh, got signed to Epic but backed up the Monkees 
That's where Richard met them. He met them when they were backing up the monkeys in Florida. Richard lived in Tampa and That's came right. up and lived in their loft. And uh, uh, I think they're on the original CBGB's double album that came out that has like Mink DeVille and the shirts and a bunch of people on oh, it. Oh, wow. So that's the origin story of the A band. Yeah. And at some point, I think everyone was located in Maxwell's, I mean, in uh, Hoboken then. In that apartment that I found. Next in your to my, six bedroom apartment yeah. for $85. Yeah. Oh, wow. So you guys all lived together. We did, yeah. But we, we broke up almost immediately. <laughs> As soon as we as soon as we got in there, and, and oddly, I became the odd man out and ended up moving in with my girlfriend and <laughs> losing the apartment. But how uh, did they? They lived there for many years, and then the photographer Phil Marino uh, lived there for many years after that. And how did the connection with Maxwell start? You guys are all in Hoboken. There's this club run by Steve Fallon. I don't think he originally opened it first envisioning it to be a music venue and then it sort I, I of happened he, i think he sort of had that in the back of his mind he didn't quite know how he was going to pull it off or how to do it but i think it was you know it was very they weren't even open yet and a friend of mine uh from high school was living in town uh jane said and she said they're looking for bands around the corner i just applied for a waitressing gig at this this new bar that's right around the corner from your apartment. And they're looking for bands that do original music. I'm like, what? Just seemed impossible. I mean, it was, it was really, you know, not that much going on in Hoboken at all, other than uh, sort of <coughs> what was left over of sort of the insect trust scene, which included Gene the Plumber and... Uh, yeah. Uh, but they they it wasn't so much about playing in venues. It was more like someone would have a loft party or, you know, you're playing people's houses. Or, um, and it was, you know, kind of bands playing slightly old time, more more kind of old timey, folky, uh, you know, along the lines of uh, Holy Modal Rounders, kind of yeah. that kind of a vibe. When would you say it really took off then? He you but anyway, that, I went in there. You said, yeah. And you, I gave him a tape, and he listened to it, and he said, yeah, come and, you should come and play. So, you know, that was, I I forget the year now, was 79? 78 or 79. Uh, I think it was 70, I, I feels like it was 78, but yeah, because I was still at NYU, and I graduated NYU in May of 78, so uh, it's probably... The summer of God would it have been this. No, wait, no, it must have been seventy-seven. Even oh wow, yeah. I I I, I look at the number. It doesn't always add up when I look at the current early chronology there. And the back room wasn't open. It was just the front room. And um, yeah, you know, I I started booking the place. I brought the flesh tones in the DBs. I was friends with them because I worked at. Uh, I got a job working at New York Rocker out of college. So that would have been probably late 78. Uh, Flesh Tones, DBs, uh, some other... Uh, uh, nervous Rex, I think I got to come out. and uh, The Necessaries. Oh, uh, Ed Tomney, yeah. who ended up in Ridge to Live, was in that band. Uh, just different bands that I knew from 
New York. So how big was that connection? New York rocker, a big zine back in the 70s and 80s in New York, and you did have like an editorial job there for a while. Yeah. And so would you say that connection of you working there really helped kind of spur a lot of bands playing in Hoboken and at Maxwell's? Yeah, kind of. It was, you know, reasonably organic, but... I do remember just being surprised. It was suddenly like everybody was moving to Hoboken. It was like, what? You know, Ira Kaplan's moving to Hoboken. Hey, you know, the cucumbers are here. Hey, you know. And then it just kept, more and more bands kept coming. Um, all, it's incredible the amount of people, you know, musicians that lived here at one point. You know, again, this was before Williamsburg was Williamsburg. Like, first people I ever knew that went to Williamsburg where they might be giants, and that was, you know, 85. So in the late 70s. Really, Hoboken was the first sort of art, you know. Place where people could live cheaply and make art. Yeah. So you started the A band early on in the days of Maxwell's in the Hoboken music scene, and then Project Disbanded, and you started the Individuals, which was your project solely. How'd that get together and How'd you find other members? The Again, Weigel, through, Weigel sisters, right? right? The, through the Village Voice, I took out an ad and did I had? I originally had actually uh, John Clett, who <laughs> see this gets all this gets all pretty uh, inside, I guess, in a way. But John John Clett and another guy who went by the name Emerson Bimby. <laughs> uh, Lived in the when the when the, loft, when the Laughing Dogs moved out, and Richard moved out, they moved into <coughs> the Laughing Dog space. And Laughing Dogs had an incredible. They built like this internal. It was like a loft with like an internal practice room. You know, like that was walled off, so I guess soundproofed, so it wouldn't bother the neighbors. It was a really cool space. And uh, Billy and Miriam from Norton, I think, lived upstairs and. Or, or next door or something. Um, anyway, John Clett was a drummer. And he was there. And I said, let's put, you know, what, how about we put a band together? He's like, okay. And he actually ended up becoming much more of a, really more of an engineer. But he, he was a really impressive machine-like drummer. Like, I, I don't think I've ever seen anyone play quite like him. It's just incredible, uh, you know, metronomic, very simple, but, incredibly precise drummer he ended up actually doing a record early kind of uh new wavy sort of synthy b-52s band called the hawaiian pups um and but he stood he was it was the two of us and then we kept auditioning different people janet popped up first of the final lineup actually jeffrey lee pierce from the gun club jammed with us a few times but yeah when i found when i found john clay just was like wow this guy has like that kind of power in his hand that richard lloyd has i thought he's got that he's got that down i you know and and then we had our lineup with john clett and when john decided he wanted to do more with uh recording and engineering uh then we auditioned a whole bunch of drummers including bob riley who ended up being the drummer in rage to live and uh but Doug Weigel uh, was ready to move from from uh, Columbus, and where where he worked in a record store, and 
you know, he seemed committed, and he'd already been in a bunch of bands, had a real sort of pro attitude towards things. And uh, so, Doug, it was Doug, Janet, John Clagus, and myself. And and how long did that last? You guys did put out one LP. You had a record deal. You also put out an EP, and you did a, a bit of touring as well, right? Yeah, we toured a lot. We uh, toured, you know, all over the country. We went. Out, we'd go out to. You know, Chicago, Minneapolis do that kind of run up to play Boston a ton, uh, uh, down, you know, down again, you know, that sort of Mitch Easter recorded at Mitch. We were the first record recorded at Mitch Easter's drive-in studio while uh, R.E.M. was recording their first EP. Yeah, so, you know, went to Athens, played there a bunch and played with all kinds of 10, 000, played with 10,000 Maniacs, they opened for oh, us. Wow. Till Tuesday opened for us. Del Fuegos. What are some of the more... David mem- Johansson. We played with X in North Carolina. Oh, wow. What are some of the Romeo more... Romeo Void. <laughs> memorable <laughs> James like, gigs you played with the individuals, like with ba- certain bands uh, like X or the DBs. We did a b- like bunch of shows with Mission of Burma in Boston wow. and the Neats and the Liars played with all those bands. And those... Talk about three great bands from Boston, you know? all from Boston yeah, too. Yeah, fantastic. And, and Mission Burma, especially, were just so as good as as it gets. You know, probably my favorite band until the Replacements came along. Wow, <coughs> that's uh, yeah, that's incredible. And seeing a Mission of Burma in their prime, probably amazing. Yeah, they seem really fierce, high energy live band. So before we go any further, I thought maybe we could play a couple of songs from this era of your career specifically some individual songs let's do it let's play a couple of individuals classics my three sons and dancing with my 80 wives enjoy and we'll be back
We're back. You just heard two songs by the individuals, My Three Sons and Dancing with My 80 Wives. Those were both off of the individual's 1982 release, Fields, released on the Plexus record label, subsequently reissued by Glenn's label, Bar None, in 2009 or 2008, I think. And it was released on CD, and it included the subsequent aquamarine ep but let's transition to talk about your next musical project rage to live so after the individuals rage to live started as a side project solo project for you yeah it actually started during the individuals because it was i think when a band's together for a while it gets harder and harder to sort of get material sort of through the system of the band and get things worked up where they sound good. I, I can't quite explain it. And plus the individuals was sort of, uh, you know, we were, we were kind of, it was a democracy and we were all kind of groping, like, you know, let's try to be something really new that no one's ever heard before kind of thing, you know? And so there were, you know, we were kind of art rock, but then we were also exploring, you know, the jangle. Yeah. You know, as people were doing, you know, it's like birds records. There's something going on there. We got to like, you know, it kind of sounds like Venus de Milo, you know, by television. What, what does that all mean? How do we incorporate some of that? And then REM came along and kind of did it better than anybody else, you know. Yeah. So there's all these different little competing uh, 
ideas and pushing and pulling and so it, it was tricky you know it's hard to get songs together after a while so Rachel was more like I'm gonna do some covers I got these songs they're just like straight up pop songs they're not really you know I'm not trying to reinvent the wheel it's just like here's a song about James Dean here's a song you know about whatever and uh it's just a little more straight ahead I guess yeah, I could see that. It's so, a very pop-oriented sounding yeah, record. Yeah. Really good. The one Rachel Live record, I know there's two, yeah. but the one record that I've played a lot, really pop-oriented sounding. No, you have the first really one? Good. Yeah. yeah. The, the one with the fish. Oh, no, that's the second, second one. one. <laughs> I have the second one. Second oh, you have, one. You, do you have the CD? I have LP. Uh, I have vinyl. Wait, the swimmers on that? So, yeah, I think so. Is uh, it? Maybe you listen to it on Spotify. Spotify, yeah. <laughs> but I do have the LP. But okay. uh, as well, yeah. Yeah. Now there's there's two. Yeah. I'll I'll see if I can hook you up with that. Oh, cool. First Thank album. You. Thank. But uh, on the CD version of the second album, we put about eight tracks from the first record. I just thought I should just load it up because I'll probably never do anything with the first record. Oh, so Swimmer's actually on the first record. First, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. yeah. That's a great great song. Yeah. Really awesome. So. Final question before we move on to, I definitely want to hear about the formation of Bar None and all that, but if you could describe the, I guess, the freewheeling era of Maxwell's, what do you remember about it and how would you describe it? Because I feel like right around the time Rage to Live ended, right? Like 1988, 1989, that was kind of wrapping up the free, I guess, the freewheeling Steve Fallon era of Maxwell's. I'm not quite sure what year Steve left. It was, you know, it was, it was, <laughs> it was a fun partying, uh, good time, but, you know, people loved music, pretty, pretty unpretentious, you know, wasn't as dark as, you know, some of the, say, a Maxis, Kansas City. Or, yeah. You know, it was, I mean, it was a lot of suburban kids that came, wanted to have the urban experience. That's, I always felt that, you know people sort of gathering on the on the edge of Manhattan and trying to make forays into Manhattan, but maybe wanting to be slightly removed. Did you find yourself collaborating with a lot of musicians that you didn't ultimately start bands with in the individuals or A? Or? <coughs> yeah. Uh, Peter Holzapple, well, Peter Holzapple was in the, er, played a couple of early Rage to Live gigs. Gene Holder from the, D, Peter Holzapple from the DBs. Yeah. Gene Holder from the DBs was basically in the individuals for a, a good year plus as well as producing us he went on the road as our guitar player after john clay just left uh as i said jeffrey lee pierce was a friend and uh i ran into Chaz jenkel once tried writing with him once uh chris butler from the waitresses we oh wrote, wow we wrote actually some of the rage to live songs like enough is never enough that was originally uh, <clears throat> a song that Chris had that he was trying to pitch to uh, uh, Billy Idol. Like someone, <laughs> someone had said, can you write a song for Billy Idol? <laughs> so he sort of came up with this riff. And then I wrote, kind of took some teenage memories and threw them over top. And uh, But then Chris didn't like it and rewrote it, I think, as a song called Jammed On On. But then I was like, Wait a minute, that song was kind of good, and I, as best I could remember it, I kind of 
you know, re-cobbled it together. And that was actually like a song that, you know, we had on, I actually got on MTV. And, oh, wow. Yeah. You also, also worked. Also, uh, Jeff Calder from the Swim Pool Cues, we wrote some stuff. Uh, there's some, there's another one I thought of. I produced the Dancing Hoods, a band called the Johnsons. Uh, anyway, how much producing were you doing back then, or engineering? A little bit. A little I mean, bit. I, I didn't really. I was never technically that good, but I was pretty good at arranging. Usually, by the time the final mix came along, someone else would have to kind of come in and sort of work on the mix. But I did uh, original Sins first record. Wow. Uh, uh, Dancing Hoods, who had uh, Mark Linkus from Sparkle Horse in that band. Oh, wow. wow. Um, uh, yeah, a couple other things. Oh, wow. Very interesting. All right, so before we delve into any additional topics, let's play a couple of Rage to Live songs. These songs are both from the original LP, self-titled LP released by... Your label, Bar None Records, in 1986. The first one, Enough is Never Enough, you created a fun music video for that got some MTV airplay. And then one of my favorite Rage to Live songs, Swimmer. And let's hit it. Oh, man. 
back here with Glenn Morrow. We just heard two songs by his project Rage to Live. We heard the single Enough is Never Enough and one of my personal favorite Rage to Live songs, Swimmer. But now we're going to transition in the conversation to your label, Bar None Records. You got involved with Bar None Records, originally started by Tom Prendergast in the late 80s? Yeah, he started started as a bartender at uh, Maxwell's and then started Pure Platters and then started Bar None. Uh, You know, Steve had Coyote and he thought, oh, maybe I should have a record label too. So he started Bar None to put out the first Rage to Live record. And then at a certain point, I was like, well, I don't think I want to go on the road. I just got married and I kind of had that experience already. And uh, plus my band, you know, like a lot of good players in Rage to Live that had sort of, you know, were in demand doing other things. And um, so it was kind of like, well, how about I become your partner in the company? Yeah. Sorry, you spend money on that video. But I found this band and they're, they're, I think they're pretty good. They might be you giants. giants and, yeah. And uh, so, so th- that was the second release on the r- label and it just didn't take off right away, but we sold 10,000 copies in the first year, and then we got it on MTV, and uh, then it took off, and, you know, we were off to the races. And that's Lincoln, the second album by They Might Be Giants, right? No, the first album, album, uh, Don't Let's Start, was on the first album that got on MTV. And Bar None also put out And then we put out Lincoln, and that had um, Anna Ang, that was, again, sort of a big MTV record, and then they... They ultimately got signed to Elektra and had their even bigger record, which was Birdhouse Flood. in, oh, in Your Flood, Soul. Yeah. yeah. So how'd you? So you brought They Might Be Giants, probably the first really big signing for Bar None to Bar None. Yeah. And how'd you discover them originally? Just playing in Manhattan. Was, I know they lived in Brooklyn. I was in Tompkins Square Park and I ran into uh, a woman I knew from high school. And she was with this with John. Fl- she was John Flansburg's girlfriend, and uh, uh, she introduced me. And you know, I told John, uh, he he was at that point. They had flexi discs that they were hammering <laughs> to telephone poles as a way to uh, <laughs> promote themselves. <laughs> and I was like, maybe I can get you a couple gigs. I, you know, because I was at that point, I was pretty connected to like you know. The bookers at Danceteria and the, the different, you know, the different big rock discos around yeah. town, Peppermint Lounge, and I got him a gig at Danceteria. I remember, and I did a couple other things. And then John called me up one day. He's like, "So what's next?" I'm like, "Man, you've got a lot of nerve." You know, I just did that for no, you know. But eventually, as the label got together, they they came to us and said, "We want to be on your label," and. Uh, was like wow okay we really didn't you know we really didn't know what we were doing at all at that point we didn't know what had it what a contract was or you know it was just complete i mean i'd had some experience because of the individuals i got involved with that record company kind of so i knew a little bit about you know cmj and radio and distribution but really like yeah signing a record deal and what was a record deal it was all pretty new to us and what do you think when you first heard them? They're definitely a different sounding band. I mean, they have an accordion. Right. Was it? Was there any 
thought of like, oh, we're kind of taking a risk with this band? Or it, it, to me, it made sense. Some of the people, you know, on the scene were kind of like, you know, what the fuck is this? <laughs> you know, like they just didn't get it. And in fact, to the point where they, it, you know, they were kind of, you know, sort of got their. <laughs> Their backs up a little bit, almost, and that, that I found interesting. I was like, "Wow, if if it, that's kind of like a real reaction, you know?" Because I'm like, "This is good. If they don't get it, there must be." It kind of felt like something's going on here. I, I maybe that seems odd to say that, but it seemed to almost validate my interest in the band because it wasn't a lukewarm reaction that you, that I got. Um, but to me, what was cool about them was like when they started, they were just a duo playing with tapes and <clears throat> and props. And they, they actually sort of came out of uh, actually there's a Mark is it Mark Marin? Yeah. He just he did he did a a show that gets into their whole origin story. Oh, wow. It's pretty interesting and a lot of stuff I didn't know. I mean I knew they were playing like all these clubs on the Lower East Side, but apparently after kind of like the whole Maxwell's scene you know, had, as you say, maybe like by the late 80s was kind of fading uh, mid to late 80s. There, there was this scene kind of on the Lower East Side that was very much about uh, performance art. So you could sort of be a band, but it was more about, it was equally about performance art and you'd have drag queens and just people doing weird, you know, performance art. Yeah. Uh, you had what's her name with the yams, you know? Uh, <laughs> but yeah, yeah. What's yeah. her name? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I had a tape of that. Yeah, I have a tape of that on the Mackenzie tapes. So yeah, I there was, her name. So yeah. the Giants were kind of doing that in a way. They were kind of like, well, we're a performance art, but we're also a band. Um, so they had like pro they had this giant stick they would bang on the ground that they'd mic. <laughs> they put a mic on the ground, bang this giant stick, and they had giant cutout heads and. You know the the puppet hand, like these giant hands that they dance around wow. with, and uh, <clears throat> just odd, odd. It was kind of surreal, you know, kind of weird, surreal, da da, a little bit of humor, uh, and then just these kind of good new wavey songs. You know, when you listen to the songs, they're just good new wave pop songs, basically, but played with a drum machine. And what I, having played all those rock discos, I knew that when the band finished playing. And the, they put the DJ put the records on. The records just sounded massive compared to the bands. <laughs> and I thought, oh, this is like you know, they're gonna have the big beat of <clears throat> you know the the DJ, the big beat of the DJ by doing the shows this way. They were almost like track dates, <coughs> which were also happening at the time, but a little bit more of a band. Um, yeah, accordion. They played accordion. I think a little saxophone. Uh, guitar and the big stick. <laughs> the big, the big stick. So tell me, bar none, it's been around for thir thir over thirty years. What are some of your, I guess, favorite moments working at the label? Some of your favorite signings? Some of the big like moments over the course of the last thirty years. Uh, <laughs> Take your time. It, you know, it was great coming out of the gate with "They Might Be Giants." Yeah. Um, I, I I'll tell you, I I have genuine affection for just about everything that we put out. 
you know, every once in a while you, you, you get in a situation with a band where things go a little dark uh, for whatever reason. But in the end, the music, you know, the music that came out of it, uh, I think we put out a lot of really great records, yeah, even the ones that didn't, you know, go anywhere. You know, there's just there's a lot of good stuff. Maybe it's not as good as we thought it was at the, you know, the moment. Like, this is going to be huge, and you can kind of go back and listen to some things. Go, okay, well, okay, maybe that wasn't quite as good as I thought. But that said, I, you know, this stunning amount of good songs. We always wanted, you know, the records to be a solid. You know, it wasn't just like, where's the hit? It's like, where are the 10 hits? Really good songs. <laughs> yeah, yeah, where are the 10 really good songs? And you guys have been the Feelies label since their reunion in 2008. They were a big part of Hoboken in the 1980s, They into the 90s, and then they disbanded in the early 90s. How does it feel to uh, play a part in kind of their revival. I know it was really important for me that Bar None put out, reissued those first two Feelies records about 10 years ago, uh, or else I probably would have never gotten into them. So how, what was that like? And yeah, how I mean, important you know, was we, that? Everybody in Maxwell, at Maxwell's really revered the Feelies. And, uh, you know, I, I think even you can, you can just sort of see it even like in different people's album covers that kind of evoke the Crazy Rhythms album yeah. cover somehow. I, I can't quite explain sight examples, but it was a certain thing that they... I mean, that record is just... Crazy Rhythms is just... You know, they... I think they they worked on those songs for like five, five, five years or eight years or something before they finally made the album, and they went through all kinds of permutations, and, um, you know, they, they just worked those songs. Every one of those songs is like a... Almost, you know, nobody should get to work at songs that hard, you know. <laughs> but they did, and they're so they sort of become these, uh, you know, they they sort of vibrate with all this effort. You know, they're just so beautifully made on every level, and um, you know that record will will resonate forever. And then they went and made all these, uh, you know, they really haven't. They haven't made a bad record. Yeah, the two the two post reunion records are incredible. Yeah. Especially, I'd say the most recent one is yeah. really really strong. Yeah, they're they're both good. They're both different. They really pivoted from. My wife says I can't. I have to stop using that word. Pivot. <laughs> um, you know, the first record that they put out, they did in a studio, and it's kind of you know good production values and kind of big sound, big drum sound. And then they're like, no, we're not going to do that again. We're going to make a really quiet kind of yeah. autumnal record and I said actually Dave Weckerman said that he goes I would call this record autumnal <laughs> leave it to him yeah. to hit it right hitting the nail yeah. right on the head with the descriptor yeah so um yeah it's that's it's been such a pleasure and a joy to work with with that band and just you know just all the just have them come back. I mean, they, it did not seem like there would ever be a Feelies again. And it was shocking when it all came together, actually. Uh, I was so surprised. Like, I didn't, you know, expect it. So, I mean, I, I, I spent a lot of time kind of trying to get the reissues out and, you know, work through the, you know, the various permutations to make that happen. But the thought that they would be playing again, I, I, 
I would that just totally took me by surprise. It's a very pleasant surprise. Yeah, yeah. I gotta say, what a great thing. I mean, just there's nothing like a Feelies show. Yeah, I, I agree. <laughs> I see them every time they play, basically uh, locally. And Bar None reissued all four of the Feelies records: uh, Crazy Rhythms, uh, Time for a Witness, um, Only The Good Life, Earth, the and Good Only Earth. Life. Yeah, you didn't so do that in order. It was not in right. order. Yeah, <laughs> it was not in order. I went first, last, <laughs> oh, then worked my way backwards. But, um, but so you stopped playing music for a well. I don't know if you stopped playing music. Did you stop playing music after Rage to Live? Did you play personally? Were you yeah. writing songs? Yeah, I, I, I sort of. I mean, I had uh, a couple of kids, and that definitely takes part of your the introspective part of your brain away which you kind of need to write songs like my you know i was singing lullabies to my kids <laughs> and music was always around and i'd you know tinker around on the guitar or uh make like uh chase my kids around with a guitar going like we played guitar tag they, they liked that back that sounds fun. Yeah. Now, and, <laughs> now they're all grown up. Not too traumatized by guitar tech. <laughs> but, uh, um, and, then, and then at some point, yeah, I tried to make a record when I was about 40. And it's it's recorded, but I just sort of, you know, never finished it. It was like, I don't know. What am, what, what am, what am I trying to do? Like, I couldn't figure out what I was trying to do or why I was trying to do it or what was the point or something. But uh, yeah, I kept playing all the time. I, then I took some really hunkered down, took a bunch of guitar lessons and learned a lot about how to, you know, play the guitar. Because I, I came up in the kind of, you know, punk rock, no wave. It's just like pick up a guitar and start playing. When Rob, when I started with that first band with Rob Norris, he was just like, I had a, like a nylon string acoustic guitar. And he's just like, here, take this electric guitar. Here, here's a pick, just play it. You know, like... <laughs> Like he just threw me into the deep end, and I really didn't know. You know, here's a, these are bar chords. He made a chart for me, and so you know, I came from a completely naive perspective, other than someone that listened to a lot of music and kind of you know had could work my way around a lyric a little bit. But you know, I had to really. It was a slow learning experience how to you know write a song, and you think, oh, I've just found this magical chord, and. You know, I'm playing up the neck here, and then oh, years later, I'm like, oh, that's an A chord, you know. <laughs> and so, oh, that's interesting. I didn't know that. So you, you sat down, took guitar lessons, and then about like five or six years ago, I know you when Maxwell's closed, you yeah. played some songs with the original lineup. Yeah, and that sort of got the bug. The band. Yeah, that got you know that sort of got me. It was like, well, now what? And suddenly, you know, I I hadn't stopped sort of trying to write songs but I didn't really really finish anything particularly every once in a while I'd finish a song but I, I didn't really know what I was going to do with it and then it was like the you know the floodgates open I just was like writing like a fiend and you know the memos that you have on your phone you can just record <laughs> with the phone memo thing and suddenly I had hundreds of you know song ideas and uh, yeah it keeps going and so then you start Glenn Morrow's Cry for Help, a new project. You recruit Mike Rosenberg on bass and other members as well. How'd you guys come together? 
I've known Mike for years, sort of in various, uh, he worked on a bunch of record labels um, over the years, and I'd run into him doing various kinds of business here and there. And uh, and we actually played in a kind of a, a little one-off band at one point, you know, doing like a Christmas, one of the Hoboken Christmas things. Um, so, you know, we were friends, and... He, he was around at the end of Maxwell's and it's kind of like, well, Maxwell's ended. And he's like, well, now, you know, it's kind of like, well, what do we do now? <laughs> <laughs> so we sat around in his kitchen for a while, just the two of us, uh, just kind of messing around with the first little germs of, of song ideas that I had. And then Rick Sherman uh, had played in wedding bands and actually worked his way through college playing in wedding bands and then got was working at a radio station and got kind of fed up with the music. It was like that point where new wave was happening, but it wasn't getting played on the radio and the stuff getting played on the radio was like right after classic rock. So just kind of, you know, crappier corporate rock. Yeah. Uh, you know, bad Jefferson Starship records. If you see how many records Jefferson Starship got to, have in the top 40 that no one ever no one remembers it's just like they were the biggest act on rca so they just kept getting shots on these like just crappier and crappier you know middle of the road rock stuff if look at their wikipedia entry it'll blow your mind wow it's like wow look at all this stuff and and he so he got really fed up with all that and decided all right i'm you know kind of thrown in the towel i don't want to do this anymore and started, got into the CD manufacturing business, and he was actually Bar None's uh, CD manufacturer when CDs first came out. And he's been, he's still doing that. That's like his his uh, day gig. If you for all your CD needs, <laughs> uh, I'll hook you up with Rick Sherman uh, at OEM. OEM, OEM. Rick OEM. Sherman. Yeah, we were kind of like making jokes with orchestral something in the maneuvers. And, um, but he was he and he has a couple of kids who are actually really good uh, musicians. His son is a, is his one son is uh, like a, a really in demand jazz drummer. Oh wow! And um, his other son plays guitar in bands and is a music attorney. But what you know now they're out of the house and he's like, okay, now I gotta do something and I showed up just and we had jammed a couple of times and I knew he was a good player and uh, so he he came on board and then we went through a a variety of drummers until Ron Metz uh, finally committed and and we've been rocking for a while now I mean this may be the longest lasting band time is very different when you're older than when you're younger (laughs) so so when did when would you say it officially started with the current lineup because you just Put out your debut album last year, self-titled Glenn Morrow's Cry for Help. Yeah. What what led up to that? Uh, we we played Emmy Emmy Black's wedding as <laughs> as a band called Nice Day for a White Castle. I think we called ourselves. <laughs> but that was with a different drummer, um, and we played Groove on Grove the first time with uh, Ray Ketchum from Elk City. But right around that time, Ron was. Uh, I think we'd already been rehearsing with Ron, and uh, 
he just couldn't do that gig. But after that, he's pretty much been on board. How'd the songs on this debut album come together? Really good front to back. I got to say, it was one of my favorite records of last year. Oh, thank a lot you. of great songs. I think my favorite is Kira Knightley, but a lot bleaker in third about place in uh, Manhattan, right? Uh, Days to come. Just tell tell everyone a little bit about uh, the inspiration behind some of the songs on these rec- on this record. Uh, Bleaker and Third, I started writing it. Sound, wow, this sounds like kind of Dylan-y, like just the the two chords back and forth, and it's kind of like I'm singing with kind of attitude. I feel like I'm singing to a dude, <laughs> and and I thought of those kind of Dylan songs, you know, that are like that. You got a lot of nerve to tell me what you, you know. Yeah, I'm going to write a song like that. So. Uh, that's sort of about a specific person, and uh, yeah. I'll just leave it to anyone's imagination. Imagination is perfect. Um, and Keir Knightley was the first song to get written for the record. Uh, I actually have a recording of that with my nephew. The two of us <laughs> sitting around at Thanksgiving. My nephew's a really good musician, and it's, it's really nice little harmony on it. I tried to get him on the record, but he lives in San Francisco now. And uh, C sharp minor is a big chord on this record. Yeah. And C sharp minor, I was like, I want, I want that to be like in the center of this song, and sort of like I sort of wrote the riff around the C sharp minor, even though it's not in the key of C sharp. It's just sort of like the C sharp chord keeps showing up. And I had a lot. Um, I forget how the. I think I just had that line. I saw Kira Knightley on the nightly news. And I'm like, that's kind of a good. Yeah, it's a great line. Good line. And I thought, well, what is this song going to be about? And from there, it sort of turned into this song about, you know, people that have various kinds of. <clears throat> I mean, mainly, I guess it's about people that have some sort of privilege, but they're still kind of oppressed uh, in other ways, you know. Or, or ways that people, I guess it's, or more, more generally, I guess it's really about ways that people are, can be oppressed that aren't the, the normal, like, you know, we're going to incarcerate, like, you know, black men in America, you know, that kind of, the, the things that really are the real problems, there's a million other ways you can be oppressed too, and it's just sort of, you know, thinking about that and, uh, uh, the yin yang of it all. Yeah. So what's next for Glenn Morrow's Cry for Help? You guys put this record out a little over a year ago. You put out a brand new song last week called Yellowed Pages. It sounds great. Thanks. Seeing you guys live, you've played songs that aren't on this album. So you guys planning to release an EP? What's up? What's on deck? I kind of have the feeling, I mean, we cut... We initially cut five or six songs. We're going to go back in and cut another four or five. I feel like uh, there might be a few things that would just be like standalone. And, you know, it's weird now because with streaming, you can kind of put things up. My, my theory is like, let's not just race to commit to an album. And then, you know, here's the album. And then the whole thing is over. I'm, I'm going to sort of, I want to sort of put material out in, in either in chunks or a, a single or maybe something will appear and then disappear. Maybe it'll come back on the album remixed with a horn section. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I don't, ha- I don't really have yep. a master plan. 
but we're going to go and record some more stuff. I think at that point, we'll go like, well, do we have an album here? What maybe we have to write a couple other songs, maybe these songs that we've written uh, that we just haven't recorded, maybe one of those we need to do. You know, I'm trying to figure out what I almost feel like there's will be missing pieces or something that will fill in and then, you know, ultimately it'll lead to a traditional album, but sort of have fun along the way and uh, keep the conversation going or yeah, something. Yeah, keep I the don't conversation know. going. Well, right now I definitely want to play some Glenn Morrow's Cry for Help. I'd love to play Kira Knightley if there's anything else you'd like to play on the record specifically. Let me uh, know. Yeah, that you know, that's a good one. People, uh, days to come. That seems to be the the big uh, favorite or the one that's gotten the most notice or the most. <laughs> it's gotten the most uh, streams, I guess, or something. All right, so let's play that, <laughs> and then let's play the brand new song that you guys cool. just released last week, "Yellowed Pages," and we'll be right back. Enjoy those songs, everyone. Thank you. 
All right, welcome back. We just heard Kira Knightley by Glenn Morrow's Cry for Help. We also played Days to Come by Glenn Morrow's Cry for Help and the brand new song Yellowed Pages by Glenn Morrow's Cry for Help. Thanks for sharing those awesome songs. They're all gems, (laughs) all beautiful, beautiful songs. But now we're going to transition to the second portion of the program where you picked you picked two records from my collection, and we're going to play some songs for them and talk about them. First, The Replacements, Hootenanny. You love The Replacements, don't you? I do love The Replacements. Do you remember the first time you saw them? Was it at Maxwell's in Hoboken, or was it in the city? Uh, it was... Uh, or I were you was, on tour in... Well, actually, you know, I sadly, I, got, I went to uh, First Avenue. We were on tour... And uh, Paul Westerberg played solo, opening up for Yorma Galkinen. Wow. And we got there just as Yorma was going on, and people were just like, oh, my God, you missed it. It was so amazing. Like, that, you know, he had never played a solo show at that point. And, I, and he didn't again for a really long time. So that was kind of a bummer. And I didn't know, I, I just had a sense of him at that point. And then the band, The Dancing Hoods, that I produced, I remember they were like, you got to see this band. And I think we all went down to um, uh, Music for Dozens at Folk City. Yeah, that's the first time I saw them. And it was really kind of crazy. And <laughs> I'm not even sure I liked it. It was They were playing, I think they were kind of playing their skiffle set because uh, it was at Folk City, and they were just kind of maybe... I don't, I don't know why. <laughs> I just remember being slightly like, what the fuck was that? But intrigued enough that they were playing Great Gildersleeves like two nights later with Husker Du, and I thought, I'm going to go see that. I want to see... Like, something compelled me, and I couldn't get in. It was, like, sold out because oh, wow. Husker was actually bigger than the replacement. And at that point, I think I, I really got into Hootenanny. had just come out. And they were kind of touring on that. And then I uh, I had some friends at Twin Tone, and uh, one thing led to another. And, yeah, it was just like, where did I see them next? I'm not not sure. But I finally saw them play, like, just a mind-blowing show, not maybe at Danceteria, I think, was maybe the next time I saw them. And, and I, I was sold. Did you have any connection to get them into playing Maxwell's and stuff like that? Did you like hook that up? I definitely up was talk. I was talking them up. I can't remember. You know, I remember talking to Michael Stipe about them once, as they were sort of heading out towards Minneapolis. REM was headed out towards Minneapolis, and uh, said, "Yeah, you got to check out the replacements." And they're like, "Oh yeah, that's that band. What's this? Something about the trash?" And you know, they were sort of on his radar, <laughs> but not really. So you know, before Let It Be and 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 Peter Buck worked with them and. Um, I was just a big champion to anyone that would listen. And I would play these these <laughs> board tapes from CBGBs for whoever. Uh, th- I saw them a lot at CBGBs. They did a bunch of shows at CBGBs. Oh, wow. And they were just, it was the perfect space for them because the s- sound system there was so loud and they were loud, but, uh, you know, everyone's crammed in together and everybody was there. You just got the sense, like, everyone was like, something's happening here and we know what it is you know we're here ahead of the like this is ahead of the curve yeah yeah like you know remember holly george warren being there and just like hearing um 
unsatisfied for the first time live, you know, before it was on a record and just like, oh my God, that's a that's, very powerful yeah, song. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Um, so you picked Tootin' any particular song you'd like to hear uh, from this album? You know, there's, there's lots of great stuff on there, but in a way I, I like Hospital because it doesn't take itself too seriously. And I think they sort of recorded it. Well, I, I listened to the, I think the live at Maxwell's version the other day that the playing is just, it's just so wild. Like the way they play, like they're just kind of all over the place and yet kind of in the pocket at the same time. I, I can't even explain it. It's like they're both, both Westerberg and uh, Stinson are just wanking away. And yet it somehow congeals and, you know, just the, into something really great. Yeah, it's an awesome album, and they're an incredible, incredible band. Excellent choice. And following that, we got the Shangri-Las, golden hits of the Shangri-Las. Yeah, I thought uh, Past, Present, Future, which actually the first time I ever heard that song, Alex Chilton played it at CBGB's when he opened up for The Replacements. And I don't think I knew the song until that time. But and I went back and listened to the original. It's kind of a great teen melodramatic cinematic number by um, written by Shadow Morton. And uh, just great, great delivery uh, by Mary from the Shangri-Las. And uh, yeah. Awesome picks. Speaking of Alex Chilton... I know you're a huge Alex Chilton fan, and I know Bar None put out solo records for Alex Chilton. You know, sadly, he passed away about eight eight years ago. How big of an influence was Alex Chilton on you and the way you write and play music and things like that? I know you're a huge fan. Yeah, about... I mean, I've gone through different phases of, you know, different... You know, certainly Lou Reed, Brian Wilson. Uh, I don't think I ever wrote like Todd Rundgren, but I like... Actually, the reason uh, I signed uh, or liked the first They Might Be Giants records reminded me of A Wizard of True Star by Todd Rundgren. Yeah, I could totally see like, that. Yeah. yeah, I was like, oh, this is like A Wizard of True Star. I totally get this. Um, but I would say Alex was like the first guy... And and big big star Alex Chilton, but both solo and the big star records, like many people of my generation, you know, there's something. It's like the approachable version of the Beatles or something, you know, and also taking ideas that the Beatles had, but then kind of moving forward, you know, with those ideas into the middle of the '70s and you know laying some of the 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 groundwork for whatever became known as, you know, alternative or indie or something or other. Do you remember, from what I understand, Alex Chilton, you know, Big Star ended in the 70s and then he was kind of trying to get going again with his solo work. And then around like 1985, he was in the city, kind of struck a record deal or something. Uh, do you remember that time when he was trying to kind of get back into writing and recording. Well, I used to music. see him. I mean, the time when I was, I'd say, most influenced, and actually Ira Kaplan mentioned this too, that sort of the period that really influenced us and the stuff I, I probably liked 
had a real affinity for was when he came after Big Star broke up, he came to New York and he put out stuff that's on the Orc. Yeah. Uh, the uh, that that Orc compilation that's out now. He was on Orc Records, and I was kind of on the periphery of that scene. Charles Ball, who was one of the partners in Orc, uh, put out the individual's first EP. So you know, I was kind of watching from the distance, and I, I I'd heard the Big Star Records, and they didn't make an impression on me at first. But then I went and saw. I actually took the. I think I took the records to CBGBs. I was going to try to sell them because they were really hard to find at that point. This is like '77, and Chilton was playing with Stamy in a in a I think a trio. And Stamy, I I still think I'm pretty sure he had braces, which you know <laughs> seems. Did I dream that or was that actually true? Did he come to New York and was had braces? Um, <clears throat> but I was just blown away. And uh, then shortly thereafter, the third Big Star record came out. And right as A was breaking up, I think I heard, I heard Kangaroo for the first time. And it, it was somehow the, the breakup of my first band and, and the, the, the sort, of, sort of deep, sort of romantic, melancholy sadness of that song just kind of like... You know, blew a hole through my heart or yeah. something. And how'd you start putting out records for Alex Chilton, bar none? Uh, we were kind of dancing around each other for a while. He'd wanted me to put up Blacklist, but I thought, if I put this record out and nothing happens, that'll be the last time I ever work with him. And it had a couple, I thought it had a couple Duff tracks on it. Um, so it was an EP, so it just seemed like eh, this maybe isn't the way to go. And then I reapproached him uh, through Jody, uh, a, a different idea for a project, which he turned down. But then he had the album uh, set, or as it was called in Europe, "Loose Shoes and Tight," <laughs> "Loose Shoes and Tight Pussy," <laughs> and uh, we ended up putting that out. And I got to you know kind of have the full experience of getting to know Alex a little bit, and you know. I can't say we were friends. I was too much of a fan, but it was really fun just to be able to, you know, carefully ask him questions and, uh, uh, you know, try to move him on down the road a little bit. Yeah, that's incredible. Um, and we're actually putting out a couple new Chilton releases, so in, in next year. So stay tuned. Yeah, can't wait. Very excited. All right, well let's play. You heard it here first. <laughs> heard it here first. All right, well, let's play uh, The Replacements, Take Me Down to the Hospital off of Hootenanny, and The Shangri-Las, Past, Present, Future. And then we'll come back, and we'll talk a little more.
green and yellow basket. I'm all packed up and I'm on my way and I'm gonna fall in love. But at the moment, it doesn't look good. At the moment, it will never happen again. All right, Glenn, thanks for those picks. That was incredible. Replacements and Shangri-Las. What a, what a segue, right? Excellent. <laughs> Excellent. I don't know if those two songs are in the same universe exactly, but... Uh. <laughs> That's good. We want songs from different universes to come together. But unfortunately, we're coming to the end of the program. Glenn Morrow's Cry for Help will be appearing, performing at the... North Jersey Indie Rock Festival on October 6th at White Eagle Hall here in Jersey City. Do you guys have anything else coming up? Any other gigs on uh, the we're, horizon? We're, we're playing uh, the Man Cave in Bordentown. Awesome. Uh, in November. Um, and yeah, we'll be cooking up some other stuff. Awesome. Well. Can't wait. Hey, Glenn, thank you so much. It was a real pleasure thank to you, talk Tom. to you and hear all about this great stuff. It was a Truly awesome. You, you Thank pull, you very you much. You pulled a lot out of me, I'll tell you. <laughs> That's what I do. I'm That's what out I right. do. But, uh, so we're going to wrap up with one more song by Glenn Morrow's Cry for Help. Comfort Zone. Get out of your comfort zone, everyone. We'll see you on October 6th at White Eagle Hall for the North Jersey Indie Rock Festival.
Back home.